You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. from uh, King's College in London. She's a senior lecturer there, which in, in the British system is equivalent to associate professor. And uh, she has also worked on regionalism and, and federalism and, and similar issues. Um, she's a, a political economist, among other things. And her, her uh, was it 2010 or 2011? Yeah. 2010 book called uh, Political Consequences of Crony Capitalism Inside of Russia you know, develops that theme. She's also published on other political economy topics, you know, such as federalism and uh, its impact, uh, political and economic impact. But uh, she's also maintained a research interest in questions of social identity, and in particular late Soviet and post-Soviet identities in Russia. And uh, her, her new project is, is more along that lines. And in fact, today she'll be speaking about uh, that new project. And her title, uh, in particular, is Putin's Leadership and Historical Legacies in Russia. Was the Soviet revival inevitable? So please, let's give a warm welcome to Professor. Thank you very much. Um, it's my pleasure to be here. Ted, thank you very much for inviting me and giving me this floor um, to present what I consider a, sort of a personal quest to understand the reasons behind the increasing chasm gap in my understanding of Russia and Russian politics and my attitudes towards Russian politics and what's happening inside Russia, and to those understandings that uh, are dominant, predominant among people who I love but who live in Russia, who are very close to me, and that observation of an increasing disparity in this understanding has uh, posed a puzzle for me, uh, which uh, I hope to be able to realize in a book. I've been writing a book on this. And what I will be presenting to you today is not a very formal, uh, formally articulated uh, research uh, design-led um, uh, project, uh, but rather the path of my thinking uh, um, uh, that uh, uh, is linked to my book project. So it's probably uh, a bigger story to say but which hopefully will be supported by um, some of the findings from the empirical data that I have been able to produce uh, linked to the project. And um, hopefully uh, it will be provocative and stimulating enough to get some of your feedback, thoughts, questions, concerns. Very much something in development as we speak. Uh, I just started my sabbatical in Washington and uh, working mostly on trying to turn some of the chapters into an article format because I think that the topics that I'm talking about are so relevant, so actual, that I don't want to wait for a couple of more years while the book will be out because it is a lengthy project. So hopefully some portions of the book will be um, uh, coming out um, in the due time. Uh, and um, the, although the framing of talk today is focused on Soviet legacies, but that's just one aspect to which uh, the bigger overall uh, argument and um, analytical approach uh, relates to. 
with other uh, aspects of it being linked to understanding the roots for Putin's popularity and the roots uh, for societal sentiments in Russia. But let me first uh, start with um, talking about Soviet legacies to say that uh, I'm sure you have noticed in newspapers, in uh, Western newspapers, in Washington Post, Economist, New York Times, and if you read the Russian press, uh, or perhaps you uh, stumbled upon many uh, reviews of Masha Gessen's recent books, but the idea of Soviet revival has been very much uh, intensely discussed in the media. Uh, uh, of course, when you see short articles in the press, it doesn't really allow you to sort of distinguish uh, that there are different aspects of what we can refer to as a Soviet revival, starting with uh, frequently uh, long-noted cultural aspects of that revival, where uh, Russians uh, en masse um, started to be fascinated with Soviet relics, Soviet forms in the media, uh, Soviet um, uh, songs, Soviet films, uh, and uh, uh, in, in, in more in terms of aesthetics and form rather than uh, certain meanings uh, or political institutions. And so cultural commercialized Soviet nostalgia has been displayed pretty much since 1996 and increasing since then. Now, the interesting thing about the Soviet revival discussions more recently, and especially after Crimea's annexation, is the political institution and foreign policy aspect, where all of a sudden Soviet revival in the Western sense acquires a much more important uh, meaning, and, and uh, Soviet revival could be talked in terms of the revival of authority structures and authoritarianism, the revival of the specific relationships between state and society and certain practices on the part of the population in terms of writing letters to the president, complaints, etc. Uh, revival in terms of education institutions that could be uh, observed from Olga Vasilyev, the Minister of Education, uh, re references to the Soviet education traditions and the necessity to revive the Soviet educational traditions. Soviet language revival could also be looked under these political institutional forms. Uh, of course, post-2014, the foreign policy aspect of the Soviet revival, the anti-Americanism, polarization, the new Cold War style rhetoric has been very much actively used. And societal aspect, most uh, uh, best demonstrated by the recent book by Masha Gessen, but also by Levada surveys and uh, sociologists working for the Levada Analytical Center in Moscow who have been talking about the revival of the Soviet men, homosovetical style arguments that I will refer to a bit later. So there are these different aspects that we should not uh, conflate because some of them are uh, politically meaningful and the others, let me, I couldn't help to use a photo from a family archive of my cousin, the cultural cliches, the retro, so-called retro chic and how it looks, it doesn't look scary at all. It's about cultural consumption, having fun, commercialized use, and I want to differentiate between these different aspects of the Soviet revival. Now, when we talk about legacies, and uh, Soviet legacies are part of communist legacies, the legacies-based research has been ripe, developing, and has attracted attention not only to communist legacies, but also to pre-communist legacies. 
and hence we already since well, throughout the 2000s, more and more scholars, uh, not only of Russia, but also Eastern Europe, have been talking about communist and pre-communist structures, institutional, cultural, cognitive, that, um, uh, that, that, that matter today. Uh, although referring to these legacies uh, arguments, I will go very quickly, uh, with my certain degree of unease about the legacy-based argumentations, uh, sort of trying to, uh, let me try to point out some of the Shortcomings. So what legacy argument is about? It's about some selected variables from the past matter today, right? What those variables? Why those selected and not others? Why they matter now and not ten years ago? And why they matter in some countries and not other countries, right? Those elements of the uh, question are not answered. Right? The legacy arguments really mentions that there are certain, whether institutional uh, or cognitive or cultural elements from the past matter today. That's the usual uh, sort of setting of the legacy-based argumentation. And I find myself uh, a bit uh, critical uh, of, of, of uh, stopping at that point. And... Um, uh, you know, uh, wanting to pay attention to what kind of Soviet legacies and why they were brought uh, back uh, now. And when we talk about, say, Soviet legacies, should we distinguish between style, aesthetics, and forms? Uh, this is the argument be made by an anthropologist, Sergei Ushakin, and between more politically meaningful, uh, with political implications, institutions, languages, structures. Um, when we look at Soviet legacies, uh, the two type, the two main types of our arguments about Soviet legacies, have been concerned with cultural, right? The, this is what I call Homo Sabaticus, which has different formats. One shape of a Homo Sabaticus-based argument is a very famous Yuri Levada uh, <coughs> written book and empirical surveys that have been continued throughout the 90s and 2000s, but the book itself was written in 1993, and it presented this essence of what a simple Soviet man is about, and was looking into the key traits, personality traits of the Soviet man. And sociologists uh, associated with Levada, and not only, supported, for example, by the recent book by Masha Gessen, have been focused on how this Homo Sabaticus is back. The Soviet man, the simple Soviet man that Levada thought is going to go away uh, with the transformation, but actually he didn't, right? So we're dealing with this psychologically <coughs> understood Soviet man, but not only psychologically, also looking into the attitudes and social norms. And here I also <coughs> refer to Josh Tucker's book, Communism's Shadow, with uh, uh, Grigor uh, Paul Elish, uh, who talked about this uh, um, enduring attitudes from the communist um, period that still uh, uh, make a difference today. That's one style of argumentation. The other uh, style of argumentation is institutional, and it looks at authoritarian, totalitarian <coughs> institutions, and basically looks, uh, rather than at the return of the Soviet men, it looks at the return of political institutions that have a close association with the Soviet-style institutions. The vertical of power, the uh, politically centralized system, certain languages, certain um, paternalist-based practices and language, 
censorship, self-censorship, restrictions on political expression, on political opposition, um, uh, those uh, elements uh, of political transformation in Russia that have been going on in the last uh, uh, almost two decades uh, are, have also <coughs> been associated with this uh, institutional uh, look at uh, the impact of Soviet legacies. Now, I would say that when we distinguish between these two um, uh, styles of argumentations about Soviet legacies, we find ourselves in some sort of analytical trap. Um, we can call it a problem of endogeneity. We can call it a chicken and egg problem. Because when you look at social norms, political culture, and institutions, you don't know which causes what. Is it the social norms and political culture of the post-Soviet people who have returned to accepting and endorsing uh, specific types of authoritarian institutions? Or is it the authoritarian institutions that were built under Vladimir Putin that led to the reincarnation and revival of a specific type of the Soviet man, right? Um, and uh, to illustrate this impasse, this uh, um, uh, 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 trap, uh, I quote, uh, uh, the writing, the narrative from Lev Gutkov's uh, uh, book, from Lev Gutkov's book, Abortive Modernization, uh, you know, with pages, page number 12, and you cannot see here, but uh, the same, actually the same page, um, uh, I will just read it. Uh, this is a book published in 2011. Lev Gutkov uh, was uh, one of the sociologists working for the Levada Center. The main obstacle for Russia's modernization is the type of the Soviet and post-Soviet man, Homo Sovieticus. His basic social distrust, experience adaptation to violence, which makes him incapable of receiving the more complex ethical views relationships, which in turn makes the institutionalization of new social forms of interaction impossible. He also refers to a specific form of insanity of the Russian society that creates conditions for the reproduction of repressive institutions as well as the man himself, right? So he draws attention to the man's quality, to the personality quality. And then in the other uh, uh, part of the same narrative, he writes about the periodic dumping of the complexity and limiting of social differentiation that slows down the development of modern institutions results not from some made-up traditions of Russia's millennial culture or specific mentality of the Russian population, but is mostly driven by the interests of authoritarian, centralized, and unaccountable power, definitely referring to power authority institutions. So they uh, sort of try to sit on two uh, seats, uh, um, to, to, to my sense. So uh, uh, I tried to go beyond and was thinking, okay, what do we do? Where do we stop? Where is the uh, exit from this chicken and egg problem? How do we uh, uh, find a path out of this endogeneity circle? And my answer was that we need to reinsert politics and agency on both sides of the equation. And how do we, uh, politics and agency, basically we <coughs> need to show the agency behind the retrieval and activization of specific cultural forms, cognitive structures, mental models, however you call them, that there is an agency behind that activization. And um, what helped me to chart out a new understanding of this problematic is the new psychology of leadership, um, analytical approach to leadership, 
uh, developed by Alexander Haslam, Michael Plato, and Steve Riker, 2011 book, that builds an understanding of leadership on the theory of social identity. Social identity theory being a theory developed by Henry Tushel and John Turner already from 79, very actively in the 1980s. This is a, a theory in social psychology, uh, a theory that points out the psychological importance of a social or collective identity to, individual, to, to an individual and posits that in each individual you have a personal self and a social or collective self and they both coexist uh, and both psychologically important for how people perceive their well-being, their connectedness to the world, to the, to the society, their meaning in this society, their purpose in this society. And uh, the, this understanding of the leader-society linkage uh, brought me to an understanding of the Putin's phenomena, of what Putin's leadership phenomena is about. And I tried to... Uh, uh, there, there, I, I made two very imperfect attempts to, to, to put a bit of structured pictures you know, to, to the argument, but the leadership process... Uh, uh, which, which is, you know, the leadership is organized according to a process, a process thereby the leaders and the followers, you know, we come together um, uh, um, uh, based on the leader's ability to connect with, develop, and forge the group's social or collective identity. And according to the social identity-based theory of leadership, the effective leaders are made in the process when the in-group followers... Right? come to see the leader as one of us, that is representing some of the key features of what the group is about, uh, forging a shared understanding of what this group is about, that's also uh, one aspect of making sense of us, what this group is about, um, doing it for us, the, that, that an effective leader, a leader who is able to influence the followers, has a great capacity to influence the followers, has to be a leader who can show the in-group people that he's doing something to promote the interests of that group, and uh, also uh, a leader who brings significance to the group. When these aspects are met, you have a more consolidated, you know, a group forms. Actually, the group, the, 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 these are some of the central elements of how the leadership process brings group formation. Group formation meaning that the in-group members have a very strong uh, affiliation, association, and value associated with their belonging to that group. Okay, so um, I guess now coming to some of the key aspects of my argument, and again, I'm not in the position of a very uh, precise articulation of it, but uh, I try to argue that Vladimir Putin was very successful in forging that collective identity. Uh, and he was most successful in forging that collective identity when he worked to activate some of the core mechanisms that were used in forging Soviet collective identity. And the two mechanisms that I see as most <coughs> crucial is a sense of national exceptionalism and the second one is, in a short way, us versus them dynamic, or using international conflict, using confrontation with the outside world, in this case with the West and with the United States, to forge national consolidation. 
These two aspects were extremely important for creating Soviet collective identity that was taken for granted, that was latent, okay? Um, uh, and uh, I have the empirical part, uh, in, in pro probably will be in one of the chapters, to show how important these aspects, these mechanisms and ideas were to forming what the Soviet man was about. So my claim is that Putin was able to reactivate these latently lying structures, cognitive uh, structures, uh, specifically starting around 2006, but really heavily activating them uh, in his third term in presidency. And he did this by two foreign policy that emphasized anti-Americanism, <laughs> polarization, Crimea annexation, but as if you remember, the Munich speech was in 2007. So there is a history to that um, uh, confrontational logic uh, with the outside world. And the sense of national exceptionalism, uh, uh, I guess one of the interesting expressions of forging this sense is the idea of the special Russian civilization, right? And so uh, I guess for me it's empirically, one of the empirical challenges is to trace how this idea of special Russian civilization started to get uh, a predominant ground in the mainstream Russian political sphere, uh, potentially existing at the outskirts, but then being closer to the ground, Ruski Mir, and uh, the special Russian civilization. Um, now, uh, I claim that this was a very successful strategy, and it worked uh, to, once again, to, 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 to manage to, to consult. It worked as a national glue for Russia, and it also created certain social trends that are frequently associated with the Soviet comeback. Um, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's an extreme uh, propensity of Russians to uh, think in terms of us versus them dynamic that in the 1990s wasn't there, in the early 2000s wasn't there, and anyone who goes to do field work immediately faces that dynamic in, in conversations. It's a certain degree of self-righteousness, a uh, certain degree of faith that uh, Russians are correct, and, certain and also uh, uh, sorry, there is a very strong affective side, uh, emotional side to this revival of um, uh, uh, identity structures. Uh, Okay, now uh, this is my second very imperfect attempt, uh, and even the fonts didn't cooperate, but in terms of just uh, in, in, uh, presenting my argument in a different way, we have the Soviet past, the 1990s Yeltsin's past, and we have, I would say, actually two stages under Putin that I mentioned, right? The earlier stage uh, of his political legitimation strategy was more concerned with the state which is also linked, if you think about state paternalism being very intrinsic to understanding state society links within the Soviet system, it also has Soviet roots, but at the same time, uh, uh, thinking in terms of identities, the state paternalism ideas and issues, they are domestically oriented issues. They concern ideas as to how state and society should be interacting. When we talk about the collective identity uh, 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 forged through conflict, and through national exceptionalism, it has these external aspects, and uh, it, it, it involves comparison with others. And um, uh, I guess I'm trying to claim that it's more effectively charged, emotionally charged for the Russians, uh, uh, because it's linked to identity rather than to social norms as to how social, uh, society and state should interact. And so my idea is that 
if you uh, imagine the Soviet society with certain, you know, and I'm talking about, when I talk about Soviet legacy, I'm talking about cultural or cognitive ideas and structures, right? And we can uh, look and find different societal beliefs. Uh, psychologists present them in terms of schemas and self-schemas, social norms, values. There is a whole bunch of them here, right? Uh, now, if we look at the Russian society of the 90s, we can also find all kinds of characteristics uh, from uh, reforms and um, uh, you know what it meant for social identity, for the end loss of collective <coughs> social identity, uh, personal loss or gain depending on uh, where you were, who you worked for, what entrepreneurialism level you had, and even effective structures which were important. Shame and humiliation that was experienced by uh, uh, by some many Russians uh, uh, in response to what was happening in relation to their loss of professions or the status, Soviet status, etc. And what I'm trying to say is that Putin worked to mobilize selective, selective ideas, but also core, some core ideas. He didn't mobilize everything, but he selected some which were important and which worked. And the other part of the argument is that this building uh, or, or positioning Russia into a country that is opposed to the world was only able on a specific representation of the 90s, right? Uh, so the 1990s had a lot of painful, traumatic issues uh, experienced by people at the individual level. You know, I'm not here to talk about those. But also there were positive developments, institutional, political, individual, market-based, entrepreneurial, cultural, right? And however, the, the way that the social identity gain happened basing on conflict and sense of exceptionalism could only happen on what I would call, but wouldn't go too much into it right now, constructing collective trauma of the 1990s based on that rhetorical strategy, based on that representation of what the 1990s were about, he was able to invoke the core Soviet identity structures from the Soviet period. Okay, I think the rest is a bit, uh, uh, I'm repeating myself here that I mentioned, you know, in the 1990s, in, at least in his first term in power, very much there was a focus on the state. It did gain support for Putin, but it was not as effectively charged, you will have to agree, than the strategy that was selected post-2012. There was also a return of certain forms, cultural symbols uh, of the Soviet and also pre-Soviet um, period. Uh, when we look at the legitimation stage uh, two, again, uh, you know, of course, in, uh, in, in, in explaining, in describing, we can divide into sharp uh, boundaries, but there was no sharp boundary. Of course, it is a process of learning, experimentation of what works, what doesn't work. And therefore, I did not put uh, right now a very clear year uh, indicator, but I do call that this is the second stage of legitimation uh, strategy for Putin that focuses on foreign policy and on the increased salience of collective identity vis-a-vis -vis the others. That's where these ideas of confrontation and Russian exceptionalism come to, uh, uh, 
to, to have important political implications for national consolidation, for uh, Putin's charisma, for irrational faith in his leadership ability, for sometimes an unconditional support, for fears as to what comes after him or what, who could replace him. Um, okay, uh, what are my... Okay, uh, I, uh, I don't know if you would disagree, but I, I tend to see that this um, second strategy of his political legitimation that was focusing and making collective identity salient had a lot of um, undesirable social ramifications, although as we know, quite desirable from the Russian citizen's perspective. Uh, it is undeniable that when you look at Nevada surveys, they show the early, nine, the early 2000s feelings of shame and humiliation about what your country is about, and post-2014 feelings of pride and patriotism and desire to live Russia, to, in Russia and, 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 and an idea that Russia is more and more people thinking that Russia is the best place uh, on, uh, in compared to other countries to live in. So, so the social ramifications that uh, I think I pointed out here are a bit negative and they are uh, um, uh, a bit, there is a selective bias here and I guess they reflect my Western positioning here. But we do see a certain degree of uh, homogenization of opinion of, of the Russian society turning into this tight pack in regards to specific issues, right? And Ted Gerber shows that uh, not to all issues, in fact, on many issues they really differ, but in regards to Crimea, in regards to Putin's leadership, right, we do talk about incredible rates of support and popularity, which is not going down despite increasing economic stagnation, uh, salary payment issues, uh, impoverishment of the Russian population, job problems, etc., etc., etc. I mean, normally, in a more rationalized world, we think that economic consequences will hit political popularity of a leader. It didn't work in Russia. Then you also see a certain degree of, uh, I refer to it as cognitive bifurcation, uh, or a certain type of double think that many people once again think about, oh, the Soviet man, Levada Soviet man was a double thinking uh, Lukavik person. And you see that in Russia also when people could express, you know, certain uh, 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 highly desired issues of material stability, economic stability, and jobs and salaries and poverty and social welfare. And yet at the same time, they would be totally supporting the policies of Putin that bring um, uh, uh, impoverishment or lack of jobs or lack of economic progress and prosperity. Uh, intolerance, anger, and hostility towards opponents. Uh, this, again, I mentioned already us versus them type of mentality. Um, you know, <laughs> this is called in Bundestag. I don't know if you noticed this case, a huge um, scandal over a student from maybe Volgograd school who presented in German Bundestag his research about a German soldier who was was he buried in who participated in Stalingrad um, battle and so the, the presentation of this Russian high schooler uh, addressing a German Bundestag 
was trying to sort of understand that you know this this soldier didn't really want to go to war sort of put a human face on the german soldier the amount of the scandal political scandal that presentation caused in the russian media going through the gubernatorial frameworks, going to school, there were a lot of repercussions. This is what I refer to as certain degree of hysteria over these politically emotionally charged issues that resulted from, once again, Putin's politics of legitimation that makes collective identity salient. Irrational faith in Putin, moral self-righteousness. I will uh, continue now. You will say, oh, okay, she's telling us stories. Uh, when will she turn to, is there any empirics to support this? So far, so good, but okay, is this research or is it? Um, okay, <coughs> now, uh, now, of course, I had to, you know, the, 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 the path of developing this argument wasn't strictly designed by a very specified research um, uh, design. It was, it was, as I said, a quest to understand but at each point, of course, it creates certain empirical issues. So, okay, what, what, what should we see if, you, you know, if, if she's writing what she's saying? So what I have to show is that, that the salience of social or collective identity has important political implications. And I've conducted a set of uh, focus group interviews in Samara and Kazan in 2016 initially. And just very recently, a survey experiment designed to test for the political importance, significance of social identity. Uh, this, this part about showing that accepts, uh, sense of exceptionalism and the us versus them mentality was important. Uh, I did a bit of empirical work to support that with um, uh, uh, secondary historical work, but very importantly, Nevada surveys show the importance of these features, of these two elements, to what he calls the foundation of the so simple Soviet man. And I also need to collect evidence on how the collective trauma of the 1990s was constructed. And this part of the content analysis um, uh, of political rhetoric, for me, I have not yet done. So here I will just talk, uh, give you some uh, uh, representative views from the focus group interviews and also the, quickly the results of the survey experiment and talk about what I did for the survey experiment. Uh, on the focus group interviews, uh, the one point that stood out was this cognitive bifurcation. I worked on starting out an interview with creating a very depoliticized environment so that people could talk not from the point of view of collective identity, but from point of view of very personal life, livelihoods. And uh, invariably, people, when they, you ask them about their priorities, what they would want to change, they start with talking about close to home issues of salaries, of social welfare, of poverty, of material welfare, uh, of education, of healthcare, uh, very normal everyday issues. Now, slowly and but interestingly, the mm, switch of the gears between this personal discussion into politically charged discussion and conversation about, say, uh, Putin, um, show, you know, uh, an incredible, a certain degree of schizophrenia, you know, as if you're talking to very different people who uh, forget about what they were speaking about in the first half of the interview and who start talking about how Putin did well that he, sh you know, that everyone fears us, that it's a good strategy. And it also shows 
a very high degree of um, uh, sort of faith, irrational faith in Putin and his ability. I'll just give a couple of um, quotes. <clears throat> the first one was actually a very poetic, a very interesting metaphor, and probably um, uh, it's all in Russian here. Uh, I don't know if I will be able to translate, but uh, Putin is... Uh, uh, um, uh, one guy in Samara mentioned that Putin is not a rocket ship that takes Russia forward and upward. It's rather he provided a um, parachute so that the fall of Russia has been put into control. That guy and that metaphor was like shared everyone really, oh wow, what a beautiful metaphor, that that fall has not yet stopped. And Russia, people still perceive Russia as falling, but in a more controlled way. Uh, so that's first. Then, you know, people share their fears uh, in the meantime. It's really fearful if people, um, uh, if someone else come to, uh, to power. And I've heard those fears not just from one person. Uh, there was another vision about, you know, what, what, what America is about. And uh, basically, many people showed, uh, re reflected on their belief that America is out, and, and sometimes it's America, sometimes it's Anglo-Saxon, Anglo, you know, it's also Britain, for example, it's Anglo-Saxon world that is out there to um, uh, decon deconstruct uh, uh, Russia. And uh, so, беда России в том, что Америка хочет развалить Россию, поэтому, чтобы нам не развалиться, пришел Путин и дал, uh, не дал развалить. Uh, everyone, there, there, there is a very widespread perception that um, that, that everyone wants the natural resources of Russia. Russia is a rich country, everyone wants it, and uh, that's also very, very um, well spread. And then the, another view is about this deal, the unlimitedness of the 90s that Putin is credited with removing. Although you would think, arguably, Khrushchevska, all kinds of uh, enormously traumatic events and incidents in Russian history occurred during Putin. Uh, now with regard to the survey experiment, and um, uh, this was done as a part of omnibus survey uh, by Levada Center, uh, oh, 1,600 uh, 1, respondents, half of which, the treatment group, were given two additional questions uh, that sought to touch on, play with the collective identity. The first question was asking about the attitudes, positive, negative, neutral, with some specification of uh, European Union allowing Ukraine the visa-free travel to the European Union, which occurred in May 2017. Sort of to point out that, see, Ukrainians received this visa-free travel, and Russians who always wanted it have not received it. So a bit of like scratching of, of the collective identity um, uh, sense. The second question, uh, this. Uh, survey was done, I think, November 26 or 27. And on December 5th or December 6th, the Olympic Committee was deciding on the banning of the Russian athletes from uh, uh, Olympics, uh, Winter Olympics in South Korea. And the question asked, do you think the Russian athletes, you know, that, that there was a sentence that, um, you know, the Olympic Committee is meeting on December 5th uh, to decide on this issue. What's your take? Will they be banned? Uh, and there were uh, several questions, you know, they will be banned, and in parenthesis, 
uh, well, because, uh, well, one was because Europeans and Americans, they are afraid of Russian athletes or something. The second one, they will be banned because, well, they've done wrong, so they should be banned, they will be banned. The third one, no, they will not be banned. Uh, and so, um, so half of the respondents, seven, 799, I think, were given these two additional questions. Then this was a third and fourth question, and question number five was, what's your approval for Vladimir Putin? And the question number six was, or seven, was um, if you were to vote tomorrow, who would you vote for? And there were six candidates. Um, now, the, my initial assessment, what I saw, was actually uh, that the approval for Putin didn't budge. It didn't change. What did change was um, that the number of people who express their desire to vote, propensity to vote for candidates other than Putin, have increased in the group where collective identity was scratched. Right? Uh, I should note that it was scratched in a negative way. Right? To, to not give uh, confidence in social collective identity, but to take away that confidence. So when Russians perceive that their country uh, you know, the, the, their groupness is not in very positive, you know, where you can be proud. You know, Russians are not proud that uh, Europeans have given visa-free travel to uh, uh, Ukraine and not to them. They're not proud that their athletes are um, uh, not allowed to, to, uh, to in the Olympic Games. And so, uh, who won? Uh, the interesting, although I created a non-Putin candidate, which included five candidates, which included also Sapchak and Yevlinsky, the two people who won most were Zhirinovsky and Zyuganov. So the nationalist voters who might have <coughs> otherwise supported Putin, they moved to, to, to the others. So I guess this is my way of showing that this collective identity does matter, and the extent to which Putin can build on the positive appreciation of that collective identity to uh, instigate pride, to instigate sort of a real patriotism, not the state-controlled, uh, state-managed patriotism. Uh, it works to support his popularity and it works as a successful mechanism for his legitimacy. Um, now, I have, I think, just two remaining slides on what is my answer to was the Soviet revival avoidable based on what the story that I've tried to share with you. And uh, again, I distinguish, as I mentioned, between the cultural forms and the aesthetic uh, Soviet forms, and the politically meaningful institutional or you know the, the cognitive structures associated with the Soviet Union that I uh, uh, articulated as the sense of national exceptionalism and uh, the us versus them mentality. In terms of nostalgia and as a cultural phenomenon, I think it's 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 hard to to say that it could be avoidable. Yeah, I think it's something quite natural for the society. You know, for people who um, are not ideologically predisposed and have spent a lot of their time uh, or lived their life in that only existing Soviet uh, system, uh, as a cultural phenomenon, probably it's not avoidable. But uh, in terms of the way that the mechanisms, uh, the Soviet mechanisms used to forge current day political uh, collective identity, I think it's a conditional yes, that it could have been avoidable. And we need to think what are the conditions for it to have been avoided. And the conditions are, and here there is a big space for discussion and, and, and thinking and, 
And, and I think it's a very important discussion because Putin's time will be up, right? And potentially at some point Russia will be into a new perestroika period, right? And, and, and if the questions that were relevant and uh, important in the early 1990s, if there will be a time when these questions will emerge again, then we have to have the answers to this question. Under which condition uh, the 1990s could have been replayed differently? Under which condition the victimization of Russia that was constructed under Putin uh, could have been avoided or at least a very meaningful alternative construction could have happened? Under which conditions could have happened? Uh, could it have happened? So uh, I sort of uh, have a quite a complicated view on what are those conditions, right? Because on the one hand, we can think about, okay, that, 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 that insti- instead the painfulness of the 1990s, could, have, could it have been avoided entirely? Probably not. Could it have been marginally made a little uh, better using international help or something else? Uh, could could um, the 1990s um, uh, liberal economists who undertook a shock therapy reform, could have, uh, would they you know, be better off if they have more carefully communicated uh, what the intentions of the reforms, what the expected pains, and what is the outcomes of these reforms could be? Could that have changed? Um, and basically, right, what are the grounds for imagining the 1990s not as the worst years ever as it is imagined today, but potentially as, yes, painful, but years that prepared the ground for the Russian economic miracle that started in 1999. And then we could talk about German economic miracle and Japanese economic miracle, the post-war miracles that were uh, really important for bringing the transformation of Japan, bringing for transformation <coughs> of, of, of Germany, right? There were economic miracles. If, you know, Russia's economic growth, right, pretty spectacular between 1999 and 2008, could have been represented as something that has come on the grounds of the pain and the reforms that were that occurred in the 1990s. That's arguably one potential representation, yet it didn't work, right? Now, if that was the representation of the 1990s, then this turned towards the Soviet mechanisms of national glue building, I argue, would not have worked. Now, who is to blame? <laughs> and. Uh, Again, this is more of a discussion point, uh, and I should probably stop at this. This is uh, the last one. But um, yeah, that's a big question. Who is to blame? I'll stop at that.